service, which we mentioned earlier. And two weeks ago, we started with the angel Gabriel announcing to a man named Zechariah that his barren wife, Elizabeth, would have a son named John. And John would be the one sent from God to prepare the way of the Lord. And then last week, we saw Gabriel appear once again, this time to a betrothed virgin by the name of Mary. And in an announcement even more astounding than the one that Zechariah heard, the Virgin Mary is told that she will conceive a son not by union with her husband, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. This baby's name would be Jesus. So we have John sent to prepare the way of the Lord. And we have Jesus Christ, who is the Lord. Jesus was the Messiah every Jew was waiting for. Like we sang as they sat in lonely exile there, whether it was Babylon or Assyria or Rome, waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the Messiah. He would be the son of David, the one to reestablish and ascend David's throne in Jerusalem. He would put God's chosen people back on top of the world, politically, militarily, and materially. And his kingdom was one that would never end. But no Jew expected the Messiah to be fully God and fully man. Yet that's exactly who Jesus is. This baby would be called holy. Gabriel refers to him as the son of God. In the virgin birth, in the incarnation, the eternal second person of the Trinity, mysteriously and miraculously, became a man. Well, today we're still talking about the virgin birth. We're still talking about the birth of Christ because it is Christmas after all. However, we're going to look at the same story we read last week from a slightly different angle, a different perspective. Instead of reading about Mary, we shift our attention to her often overlooked husband. Joseph gets an angelic announcement of his own separate from the one that Mary heard. And as we'll see today, Joseph needed an angelic announcement. So open up to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Feel free to use our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one, or if you need one last gift that you haven't picked up for somebody. Take one of those Bibles home. But before we do anything else, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for the joy of worship. Uh, like Zach said, uh, the rhythm of worship, uh, the rhythm of the calendar, the rhythm of setting apart uh, one day specifically a week uh, to focus our eyes and our hearts and our minds on you. Uh, in the midst of the hustle and bustle of the holidays, it's good to come in here and sit and sing and read your word and pray and take communion and give. Uh, to do the things that we do every week. Um, it's stabilizing in a way. It's reassuring in a way uh, when everything else seems a little hectic. Uh, but Father, I pray that we wouldn't come here just as a respite uh, from a busy world or a distracting world, but that we would come here to offer worship to you. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit, uh, that our worship would be honoring to you. Uh, I pray that you would remind us of the things we need to know. Uh, remind us of a story that we think we know really well, a story that we're pretty familiar with, 
Uh, But Father, I pray the story would never become stale to us. I pray that every year as we look back on the virgin birth, every year as we look back on the incarnation, that we would be just as amazed by it this year as we were the first time we ever heard it. Uh, And so, Father, I pray that you'd be with us this morning as we read this story. Again, Lord, may our worship be honoring to you, and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the one who has come and reconciled us to you. Uh, And, Father, again, we look forward to his second coming. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So step back, take a moment, and imagine yourself in Joseph's sandals. You are betrothed to Mary. And legally speaking, that means your commitment to her and her commitment to you is just as binding as a full-fledged marriage. You are expected to be faithful to each other for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. However, because the public wedding ceremony hasn't taken place yet, Mary and Joseph have not consummated their marriage. Joseph and Mary are not living together. They have not slept together. And as we saw last week, the gospel writers bend over backwards to emphasize that Mary is a virgin. So like any eager groom, Joseph might be counting down the days until he gets to experience the wonderful, beautiful, God-ordained gift of sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife in the context of marriage. And for all we know, Joseph may already be hoping that Mary will quickly have a baby. Their culture was not one where you waited five or ten years to have a baby in order to do some traveling or focus on your career. On top of that, having and naming your first baby. And in their day and age, particularly a son, was one of the greatest privileges, one of the greatest joys a first century Jewish man could ever experience. But then one day Mary comes and cuts your legs out from under you. She tells you that she's pregnant. And though despite the clear evidence of adultery... She swears up and down that she hasn't been unfaithful. Against all physical, medical, and scientific knowledge, and against all plain old common sense, Mary insists that she is still a virgin. Now, how can Mary possibly expect you to believe her? I mean, how much of a fool does she think you are? One couldn't blame Joseph for feeling bitter, devastated, insulted, And betrayed. But as if that all isn't already overwhelming enough, the more specific Mary gets about how this baby was conceived, the crazier she starts to sound. She claims that the baby in her womb is a product of the Holy Spirit. She says he's the Messiah. She even says that he is somehow, some way, the Son of God. Now, if you're Joseph, At this point, you're not only feeling betrayed, you're probably a little concerned that the woman you're betrothed to has lost her mind. So if for no other reason than to not set her off when she's so plainly unhinged, you tell her to give you some time to think about your future. For better or for worse, Mary is fully convinced of what she's saying. And she's never said or done anything like this before. And deep down, you do still love her. 
The last thing you want to do is drag Mary's name through the mud. You're not so bitter that you're looking for ways to publicly shame her. However, you also can't ignore what God's law says about adultery. By law, Mary deserves divorce. And if those pesky Romans hadn't outlawed Jews' enforcement of the death penalty, Mary deserved worse than divorce. So Joseph, you find yourself stuck between a rock and a hard place. But you know, ultimately, Mary's the one who put you in this position. You're not the bad guy here. Therefore, you decide to divorce her. You'll do it quietly, because again, you're not trying to make this any harder than it already is. But you can't just sweep an obvious case of adultery under the rug. So you make up your mind. You'll divorce her, and you'll tell her tomorrow. But after a day of such devastating shock, such jarring heartbreak, the biggest thing you need to do now is try to get some sleep. So we pick up in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So just when Joseph is on the cusp of ending things with Mary, God intervenes. An angel tells Joseph in a dream that Mary's unlikely story Her insistence that she's still a virgin. All the stuff about the baby in her womb being brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit. Her conviction that somehow, some way, he is the Messiah, the Holy Son of God. The angel tells Joseph that every single part of it is true. On top of that, the angel says something to Joseph that even Mary didn't hear. The angel says that this baby, whose name appropriately means God saves, will save his people from their sins. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 7, verse 14. That's the words about a virgin bearing a son. It was a prophecy that many might have thought was symbolic, or they thought it had already been fulfilled. But Jesus, this baby would be called Emmanuel, God with us. So once again, putting yourself back in Joseph's sandals, you've got a choice to make. Again, you had already made up your mind to divorce Mary, but now an angel has commanded you to stay with her. You've got countless thoughts, questions, doubts, and mixed emotions that you have to navigate. 
Part of you is thrilled that Mary wasn't unfaithful to you after all. You're relieved that you don't have to hunt down the other guy. But the other part of you is wrestling with all the ramifications of taking Mary as your wife. All the ramifications of acting as a stepfather of sorts to the Messiah, the Son of God. I mean, be honest. Do you really want to get involved in this? Think of all the questions, all the baggage, and all the rumors. Think of your reputation. What will your family and friends say? And what about the joy and the privilege of fathering and naming the first baby boy from Mary's womb that you'll be missing out on? Wouldn't it be easier to divorce Mary, to cut bait, and just start over with someone else? Look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So Joseph makes his decision. He obeys God, stays with Mary, names the baby Jesus, and commits to raise this child that isn't truly his. Joseph even makes a point to wait to consummate his marriage with Mary until after Jesus is born. There will be no confusion, no question, no doubt of who this child belongs to. Whether or not this child is a product of Joseph's body or God's power. It is clearly from God. Now I'm sure this was all difficult for Joseph. And I'm sure it felt very strange. It probably wasn't what Joseph pictured as a boy when he imagined married life. But the biggest challenges of adopting Jesus as your son haven't even arrived yet. But before we get there, an honest question. Why does Joseph matter to the story of Jesus' birth? Better yet, does Joseph matter to the story at all? Again, he is not... In the words of theologian Maury Povich, he is not the father. He is not Jesus' dad. Scripture repeatedly goes out of its way to stress this fact. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, near the end of a long genealogy, establishing Jesus as a true Israelite, Joseph is described as the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. How would it feel if you're Joseph, constantly described as the husband of Mary? Luke chapter 2 contains the only detailed scriptural reference to the time between Jesus' infancy and his adulthood. In that passage, the 12-year-old Jesus gets accidentally left behind at the temple by his parents on a trip to Jerusalem. In verses 48 and 49, when the distraught Mary finds Jesus... You'd be distraught, too, if you lost the Messiah. She, pref- she refers to Joseph as Jesus' father. But then she is quickly corrected by Jesus. Jesus reminds his mother, and he reminds Joseph of who his father really is. Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And then in Luke chapter 3, 
which by then Jesus is a grown man, Luke makes a point to record that people supposed that he was Joseph's son. People supposed he was Joseph's son. They assumed he was Joseph's son. But anyone who knows the birth story knows better. So if it's repeatedly stressed that Joseph is not Jesus's father, then why does Joseph matter to the story? Does he matter to the story? I mean, sure, Joseph may have changed the occasional diaper. And it's not nothing that he put clothes on Jesus's back with his carpentry work. And I'm sure Joseph taught Jesus many of the same lessons that any good father teaches his son. But by the time Jesus has grown, by the time his ministry begins, by the time we read the stories that so many people know about Jesus, the healings, the teachings, the miracles, by then Joseph is gone. So again, why does Joseph matter to the story? Does he matter to the story? Yes, he does. Joseph matters to Jesus' birth story. And one of the biggest reasons is this. Joseph is a descendant of David. In chapter 1, verse 27 of his gospel, Luke also notes that Joseph was of the house of David. The angel in Joseph's dream that we just read about calls him son of David in verse 20. The long genealogy in Matthew 1 establishes that Joseph is a descendant of David. Joseph's relationship to Jesus matters because Joseph naming him. In that day and age, adopting Jesus as his son, even though they share no DNA, that makes Jesus a son of David as well. Mary was likely a descendant of Aaron, which is great and all. But she wasn't a descendant of David. So Joseph matters not just because he puts food in the young Jesus' belly or clothes on his back. Joseph matters because it's his connection to Jesus that makes Jesus a son of David. And you can't be the son of David if you're not a son of David. But more practically, Joseph also matters to the story because God calls him to protect Jesus early in life. The passage that we read this morning is not the last time that Joseph hears from an angel in a dream. In Matthew 2, when the paranoid, bloodthirsty King Herod hears the rumors from a few traveling wise men that a new king of the Jews has been born, an angel warns Joseph to flee with Mary and Jesus to Egypt. Years later, an angel will again appear to Joseph, telling him that it's time to go back home to Israel. So it's by Joseph's adoption of Jesus that he becomes a son of David, so that he can be the son of David. And it's through Joseph's obedience that God protects the infant Jesus from those who sought to harm him. Joseph is often overlooked, neglected, and maybe even forgotten. But Joseph matters in the story of God the Father sending Jesus the Son into our world to save his people from their sins. But what else might we learn from Joseph and the messages that he heard from an angel? Well, maybe one lesson is this. 
that God calls ordinary people like Joseph and you and me to participate in the extraordinary works he has done and is doing in our world. The work of saving his people from their sins. Now, of course, it should be stressed that God is the one who does the real work. That's clearly seen in Matthew 1 and 2. God is the one sending angels. God is the one fulfilling prophecies. God is the one who appointed a star to hang in just the right spot so the wise men could find their way to Bethlehem. God's the one doing the heavy lifting. However, at the same time, God, in his wisdom and in his grace, calls people to be a part of it. God is the one accomplishing his plan to save his people from their sins. But he calls people like us to participate in it. Joseph the carpenter, Mary the virgin, Zechariah the priest, Elizabeth the barren woman, Craig the store manager, Cody the police officer, Becca the stay-at-home mom, Sadie the nanny, Rick the insurance agent, Sharon the nurse. God calls people. God works through people. People participate in what God is doing, in God's wisdom and in God's grace. Now, it's true that you and I aren't called in the exact same way Joseph was. We aren't called to do the exact same things Joseph did some 2,000 years ago. But you are still called to participate in what God is doing in our world right now. Again, God is the one who does the real work. God is the one who opens hearts, minds, eyes, and ears to the truth of the gospel, but you're called to share it. God is the one who hears all the cries and sees all the needs in our world, and yet you're called to pray. God is the one who is sanctifying us, progressively making us look more and more like Christ in our words and deeds. But we're called to pursue holiness. God doesn't need our money, but we're called to give. God is the one doing the work of accomplishing his plan of redemption. God is the one doing the heavy lifting. God is the one saving his people from their sins. But in his wisdom and in his grace, he calls people like you and people like me to participate in it. Now, do you think Joseph ever had any regrets? When Jesus was born, was Joseph at all disappointed that the first baby to leave Mary's womb wasn't technically related to him by blood? When they were fleeing to Egypt from an enraged king under the cover of night, did Joseph wish that he had just married a normal girl and had a normal family? When Jesus corrected Mary at the temple, when he reminded her and Joseph of who his real father is, did that moment sting for Joseph? We don't know for sure. We can't get into Joseph's head or his heart. But I like to think that Joseph didn't have any regrets at all. Yeah, sure, the baby wasn't technically his. But it's thanks to Joseph's adoption that Jesus can be called son of David. And sure, the baby didn't share his DNA. 
But Joseph had the awesome privilege of naming, adopting, providing for, and protecting the Messiah, the Son of God. And sure, life as Jesus' untraditional stepfather may have been difficult at times. But Joseph got to directly participate in God's intervention in our world, his plan to save his people from their sins. In the same way, I pray that no follower of Christ in this room would regret the calling that God has issued to us. Sure, sometimes the way God calls us to participate in his plan can cost us something. It can cost our priorities, our desires, our time, our resources, popularity, comfort, control, just to name a few. For some people, participating in what God is doing in the world may cost them everything. But I pray that we would never forget, never regret the joy, the privilege, the responsibility even, of participating in what God is doing in our world as his servants, as his children. It's through Christ that God has saved and is still saving his people from their sins. He's the one doing the heavy lifting. But how glorious is it that people like Joseph and people like you and people like me get to be a part of it in ways that not even the angels do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we have together again. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the story that we read every year. And yet, like we prayed earlier, I pray that it comes alive to us in a new way every year when we read it. Father, thank you for the work that you did in sending Jesus Christ. In sending Christ, you are saving your people from their sins. In sending Christ, you have saved us from our sins, all who believe in you. And Father, all we can do in response is praise you and thank you and glorify you. And Father, thank you that in your wisdom and in your grace that we don't fully comprehend, you do call people like us to participate in what you're doing in this world. You are omniscient. You see everything. You know everything. You're omnipotent. You are all-powerful. You don't need our help for anything. And yet you call us to participate. You call us to be a part of what you're doing. And I pray that we would recognize the privilege and the joy and even the responsibility that that is. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment as we figure out what it looks like for us to participate in what you're doing. What does it look like for us to participate in what you're doing in Fishers, Indiana in 2019, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces. How might you be calling us to participate in that? I pray that you would give us answers, give us clarity, give us discernment as we figure that out. And Father, I pray that we would be faithful servants, that we would present ourselves to you as living sacrifices, willing and obedient to do what you call us to do until that day when your son returns. Again, Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you've done in the past, for what you're doing now, for what you still have yet to do. But Lord, we know that you are faithful to do it, and you will do it. Again, we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.